What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. What I don't understand is why did he come back? Why is he still here? He's stuck. That's what it is. He's in between worlds. You know what happens sometimes? The, the spirit gets yanked out so quick that the essence still feels like it has work to do here. Adam, are you really there? I missed you. Whoopi, tell Josh Ditto. How are the 25-year-old ghost references playing, you think? <laughs> well, after a week away, Adam is back. The top five 1990 movies, plus a special Halloween edition Sacred Cow review of Tim Burton's Edward Scissorhands. That and much more. This uh, clay pot isn't going to make itself, Adam. Head on film spotting. Film Spotting is brought to you once again by Mubi, a curated online cinema that brings its members a hand-picked selection of the best independent, international, and classic films. And Josh, see how I did this? I went with the first two picks here that are movies I've seen and can heartily recommend. I left you with the movie that both of us still need to see. I so apologize you can look for that. Smart, yeah, I can look more educated. educated. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty much mm-hmm. it. We start with Sympathy for Lady Vengeance. Park Chanuk ended his Vengeance trilogy in style and to great blockbuster success with this characteristically twisted Baroque thriller whose Lee Young Eye will haunt your dream. She is fantastic in this movie. It's a beautiful trip to the dark side and the end of the trilogy's rocky road towards salvation. If that doesn't sound like your speed, maybe you want to go the horror route for Halloween. How about the original Night of the Living Dead? Armed with $100,000 and a killer imagination, George Romero channeled the chaos of 1968 into a new kind of horror movie. The result is the original zombie classic, combining shocks with social commentary and building to a stunning apocalyptic climax. Mubi is proud to present this landmark film in HD. I bet I've seen Night of the Living Dead more times than you, so I will give you that. There's no doubt there. <laughs> the pick that neither of us has seen is In the City of Sylvia, a young man wanders the city looking for his lost Sylvia, encountering only phantom beauties. Poetic Spanish master Jose Luis Guerin's lovely, perhaps sinister odyssey, is the 21st century art house at its most irresistibly dreamy, Mubi says. Everyday Mubi's curators introduce a new title, and you have 30 days to watch it. That means there's always 30 wonderful films to enjoy, all for only $4.99 a month. Plus, when you use their mobile apps, you can download films to watch offline. Listeners of Film Spotting can try Mubi free for a month. Just go to Mubi.com slash Film Spotting to redeem now. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash Film Spotting. You're listening to Film Spotting. Ghost with Demi Moore and Patrick Swayze, the number one movie at the box office 25 years ago, Josh. Later in the show, we'll share our top five films of 1990, the year that gave us Schwarzenegger on Mars, best director Kevin Costner, and iconic performances like Kathy Bates' Annie Wilkes, Julia Roberts' Hooker with a Heart of Gold, and of course, Joe Pesci's career-defining performance as Harry Lime in Home Alone. You're funny. I'm funny. I amuse you, Josh. Top five of 1990 is later in the show, but first, Adam and I sharpen our critical knives to take a look at one of the more beloved films from that year, Tim Burton's Edward Scissorhands. Those are your hands. 
you should just come home with me. Despite whatever disputes we've had about movies, Josh, I don't think there's any doubt that we agree about film far more often than we disagree, which isn't to say we don't have fundamentally different taste in film. For your consideration, the two likeliest contenders for the top seeds in our eventual Film Spotting Madness director's bracket, the case of Anderson v. Anderson, Paul Thomas versus Wes. As much as each of us appreciates the work of both directors, our votes are easy, right? If it ever comes down to it, to paraphrase De Niro's Neil Macaulay in Heat, I will not hesitate, not for a second, in selecting PTA over Wes. And the same goes for you, doesn't it, Josh, in choosing Wes? It's a no-brainer. Okay. What does this have to do with Edward Scissorhands, our first ever hybrid blind-spotting sacred cow review? Well, Tim Burton is also one of your favorite directors. And after finally seeing his 1990 movie, yes, I finally saw Edward Scissorhands, about a lonely, unfinished man played by Johnny Depp with scissors for hands who shakes up the neighborhood when he's taken in by a sweet Avon lady and her family. Yeah, this really sounds like an Adam Kemp in our movie so far. (laughs) Including lovely teenage daughter Kim. I can't help but see connections between the two filmmakers. Abandonment issues dysfunctional families, misfits and exceptional outsiders struggling to conform and be part of a community, the overwhelming artifice and meticulousness of the production design, the pastel plastered houses and cars in Edward Scissorhands certainly could populate Andersonville, the appropriation of myth and fairy tales, and yes, the quirkiness. Oh, the quirkiness. All we need now is for them to swap composers. I mean, who wouldn't want to experience the dissonance of a Wes Anderson film scored by Danny Elfman or a Tim Burton film scored by Mark Mothersbaugh? Am I as unhinged as one of Diane Weiss' obnoxious neighbors for drawing a comparison between two of your beloved directors, Josh? More importantly, since you've declined to lend me some pants and let me crash indefinitely on your guest room waterbed, can you convince me here that Edward Scissorhands is in fact a sacred cow and not just an amusing, absurd oddity? See, as you were going on and on, I was thinking, yeah, Paul Thomas Anderson does have a lot in common with Burton, doesn't he? I <laughs> Funny mean, how that works. The outsiders, yeah, the seeking community, mm-hmm. uh, that, that's really where I thought you were going. This is absolutely a sacred cow. I mean, it's held up every time I revisited it. And most recently, I think it was about a month ago, we had talked about doing this one for a while, but hadn't really had it on the schedule. Debbie actually popped it in thinking, okay, we're going to give this a try with the kids. And it's one of those you're crossing your fingers. It better hit home Mm -hmm. or these might not be our kids. Thankfully, it did. And my kids are pretty picky about movies, so they did genuinely respond to it. There wasn't peer pressure from us. They would be fine telling us, Mm -hmm. as they did with me once with E.T., it still breaks my heart that they didn't like it. I think this movie really hits chords that play across generations, and part of that is because of its timeless, idiosyncratic, fairy tale myth, quirky nature – where it doesn't get stuck in a certain teenagery milieu or setting that mm-hmm. we can say, oh, look what they're wearing. This is ridiculous, as maybe some of our 1990 movies will that we'll get to. Well, it's a completely artificial place. Completely artificial. It doesn't exist in the real world at and all. And yet what is so authentic, and I think you can say this of Wes Anderson too, is the emotion that's roiling underneath, no matter how artfully constructed and heightened the aesthetic is for both filmmakers, there is a truth to what they're tapping into that surpasses that and and uses those aesthetics really to 
hit on those feelings. I think that's what makes them, for me, great filmmakers. Now, Burton, you could say, maybe later in his career, was not quite able to make that connection work. And in films like Alice in Wonderland, where I just didn't find that at all, that's where we start to say these filmmakers feel like they're going through the motions. I I hope Wes Anderson never hits that point. I don't think he's come near hitting that point yet. Um, But here in Edward Scissorhands, Burton is working at the height of his powers, meaning that he's able to hit that emotional truth and he's able to use it by doing this distinctly visual, though we should talk about the team he has at work here too in terms of production design. And you mentioned Danny Elfman already. It's bringing together all these elements that are distinctly Burton, but it's funny when you when you think about filmmakers like that uh, who seem to have their signature style. Very true, but look at all of the regular players they work with to get that style. And it's really more of a collaborative effort than maybe we at first think. Uh, You know, one more comparison to Wes Anderson, we can set that aside, but the way he used Mark Mothersbaugh for his first Mm -hmm. number of films was so crucial. So, yeah, Sacred Cow, no doubt in my mind. I don't really disagree with anything you said. I just wish I had the passionate response to this film that you did. Really, I kind of wish I had it passionately either for or against. I liked this film. It's probably the lowest ranked of any sacred cows we've done, but then we've discussed some pretty great movies up to this point. I don't know that I am with you completely on how much emotion is always underneath that artificiality really coming up to the surface. It's certainly there in parts, and we'll talk about some of those moments. But I was watching this film, and since I'm going back and seeing it for the first time, I'm placing it within a little bit of a different context based on movies I've seen more recently. We talked about Eraserhead. That was a blind-spotting review. And then thinking about Wes Anderson, it occurred to me that the way you get Edward Scissorhands is basically it's what happens when the Royal Tenenbaums go visit Henry and Mary's apartment from Eraserhead. I think those worlds colliding, the darkness and that macabre nature of Lynch, the reality with that whimsy of Wes Anderson, and you get something like what we see in Edward Scissorhands. And I mentioned the pastel houses and the cars. How about those shots looking down on the subdivision, down on this little town where everything happens in unison, right? The cars all move together. The people move together. There's either no activity or constant activity, as if an alarm clock goes off and they all wake up at that exact moment, or they all are urged to action at that exact moment. The residents of this place are more automatons than people, and there's no real room or call for individual expression, which is, of course, how the Edward character clashes with them. And that also does get back to the Wes Anderson thing a little bit. That's Burton exhibiting the same type of control over all the pieces of his playset universe, the same way we often see with Wes Anderson's movies. I said, there's some really nice moments here, and one that stuck out to me early on was when Edward first comes into the house after Diane Weiss' character Peg has brought him in, sort of randomly. It kind of doesn't make sense, though I think there is an emotional logic to it. And she's giving him some clothes to try on that belong to her husband, and he, of course, is having a rough time with it. His scissor hands get in the way. They cut the suspenders or something. And then she's mending up the clothes, trying to kind of put them back together. And at one point looks around for some scissors, right? And then she realizes, of course, that he's right there in front of her and can help out and asks him to do it. And he cuts the thread. And when he does it successfully, Depp smiles. Just this perfect little smile. Great moment. That totally reflects the fact that he's happy at being useful. 
He's probably never been useful before, not even to himself. And here in this moment, he's useful to her. He's useful to himself. And that's where the emotional logic comes in a little bit. I think we get from that opening sequence with Peg going door to door, trying unsuccessfully to sell the Avon products that she sees, of course, in Edward, someone she can help, a project, someone she can fix because she thinks he needs makeup help and those scars on his face. So she can be useful. So this whole film is about these people who are looking for some kind of purpose, and there's a little bit of a kindred spirit there. And I do think, going to what you said, Josh, about how there's something fundamentally truthful in this movie, I think that reflects some fundamental human truths. And even at the dinner table, the first night at dinner, where she's so concerned at not appearing rude to him by having her son constantly stare. She's just constantly haranguing him to stop watching him, but it never occurs to her to actually help him. Kevin, it's not polite to stare, dear. Kevin, think how it would make you feel if somebody were staring at you. I wouldn't care. Well, I would, so don't do it. Well, this this must be quite a change for you, right, Ed? Edward, dear, I think he prefers Edward. Oh, sure. So what have you been doing with yourself up there in that big old place? I bet the... I bet the view must be spectacular, huh, Ed? Edward. Yes? Mm, No, I... I just... See all the way to the ocean, I bet, huh? Sometimes... She's just going to let him flounder over there because she thinks that's more appropriate than drawing attention to his condition. So I think that that sense of being more concerned about being rude is actually, again, a fundamental human truth. And so this movie does tap into a few of those for sure. One of the things that I appreciated more than I ever had before was Diane Weiss' performance. It Mm -hmm. is just so wonderful at hitting that note of doing things that you're right don't make sense except that they're coming out so naturally from who she is mm-hmm. just this this woman who is um, open-hearted and willing to think the best of people and wanting the same for her children and taking Edward in and right away she hits and she's so funny too I mean that, that dinner scene everyone in that scene mm-hmm. Alan Arkin we should probably get to is absolutely hysterical so I definitely appreciate it Weist and yeah this idea of um, finding your person Purpose, I think is a good thing to hit upon because the reason this movie for me is a sacred cow that holds up is because, again, it will speak to multiple generations. And the thing that I think it's hitting on, we see outsider cinema often we think of as being angry mm-hmm. or, you know, more akin to something like punk rock. That's the tenor. And this is a definitive moment in outsider cinema, but it's not thought that way because it's it's a really gentle middle finger. But what it's essentially doing is giving a middle finger to that suburban setting and that routine where everyone has to fall in line in their place. And if you don't fit there at all, you don't have a place. You don't have a purpose going mm-hmm. back to what you were saying. And it's not only th- – that's how teens can sometimes feel. Where and where should I land? What should I do? That's what you're trying to figure out in those years. And so this movie finds – a place for this guy who absolutely should not fit in anywhere and manages to do that for him. I'm glad you brought up those shots looking down at the town because that establishes early on that this whole story we're seeing from the view of the inventor played by Vincent Price and Edward who are up in this castle and they're seeing the 
absurdity of this neighborhood and this suburbia. And we are immediately put in their place so that when we get down to the town, we see it as well as, aside from the Diane Weiss character and maybe her family, we can talk about how Alan Arkin plays this, that everyone else is in this robotic mode. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so it just emphasizes that idea of not fitting in at all. Well, it also suggests in other scenes where you know the Vincent Price character is no longer living, this omniscient narrator voice, which the movie is framed by the bookends of the Winona Ryder character Mm -hmm. looking back as a much older woman. So we are getting this whole story filtered through her perspective, which does just add to the artificiality. You're listening to Film Spotting. We'll see if Josh ends up giving me the middle finger, a gentle middle finger for not loving Edward Scissorhands enough as we get into some of my complaints about the movie in a moment. This is a blind spotting and sacred cow edition of the show because Josh obviously has seen it before and is revisiting it, and I am actually just seeing it for the first time. One note before I get to those complaints, Josh, is I find it interesting that everybody goes back to the Benny and June diner scene and talks about Johnny Depp and his skills as sort of a silent comedian aping Charlie Chaplin from The Gold Rush with those dinner rolls and the forks. But I've never heard anybody, I'm sure it's out there, but I've never heard anybody talk about how he's basically doing Buster Keaton in this movie as Edward Scissorhands because he's more or less silent the whole time. He has a near constant deadpan face. And so those moments where he does finally smile or laugh or say something, those are really striking, right? Because he is constantly in that mode of being expressionless. And then all the humor truly does come from his physicality. Those are the same types of bits. The waterbed bit, which I did laugh at when Winona Ryder comes home and finds this crazy looking man with knives for hands, scissors for hands, of course, on her bed. That's really funny. But Anything where even the dinner scene that we touched on, right, where he's trying to get that pee to stay on, that's the kind of stuff you would see from a Buster Keaton film. Sure. Absolutely. And I I think he's mining on the entirety of silent comedy. And and Keaton, I think, is maybe where some of the specifics come from. But he also combines with that the pathos of Chaplin. Yeah, So it's, it's this perfect melding of me without aping any of their signature characters and creating one fully of his own. And I, one of the things I wanted to ask you was specifically about the performance, because when we were doing a lot of Johnny Depp talk uh, around Black Mass and around Mm -hmm. the poll we had trying to figure out the type of styles of his career, which we preferred the most, eventually you got to a point where you said something like, I'm starting to realize I just am not that into Johnny Depp, Mm -hmm. Um, which, you know, flabbergasted me to a an extent, except that you hadn't seen Edward Scissorhands. Has this convinced you a little bit more on what he can do? Or maybe is this, do you see this just as more like, okay, I, I can see where Captain Jack Sparrow started? Yeah. I think I probably lean a little bit more there, but that doesn't mean I don't appreciate the performance. I really do appreciate it, but it's very minimal. And actually, that's what I like about it is that it is so minimal. It is so physical. And that when that pathos does need to come through, it does. It does just enough. And he doesn't overemphasize any of that. So I would say, as I'm now reflecting back on depth performances, this one would be a standout for me. So I can add another one to the pro side in any argument for or against Johnny Depp. The thing that I had some uneasiness about with this film, and it really was fairly early in the movie where this started, and as the movie went on, it only was exacerbated, is the way that there's satire. And I think there's an element to this film where Burton probably is commenting on conformity and sort of the disillusionment of suburban life, whatever that may be. But there's also just 
reveling a little bit in the grotesque. And there are a lot of women in this movie, Josh, a lot more female characters than men, certainly in the film. And almost all of them are some combination of overweight, caked with makeup, sexually aggressive, gossipy, bullying. They're all kind of monsters. They're monstrous in a variety of ways. And I would go so far as to say that even the two redeemable female characters, ostensibly redeemable characters, aren't all that interesting or complex at all. Peg, as much as I love Diane Weiss's performance and as much as I laugh with her character and at her character and find her to be sweet and sympathetic, she is ultimately completely ineffectual. And Kim, the Winona Ryder character, is an object of beauty. That really is all she is. Edward falls in love with her picture, and he stays in love with her despite how poorly she treats him for most of the movie and how poorly she allows him to be treated by other characters, including her boyfriend played in a almost sniveling, you know, twirl your mustache kind of way by Anthony Michael Hall. And I know we're probably supposed to see all this as romantic and noble. It's unconditional love. As you talked about, sort of there's a gentleness to it that it's not punk rock. We're supposed to really be enamored in a way with how affectionate Edward can be and the way that Depp portrays that. But for me, her face alone is a lot to hang unconditional love on. I don't know. I think this is a little retrofitting some political correctness here. I'll, I'll which give you, you do. I'll which give... you do often, Josh, <laughs> let's say for the record. Well, okay, maybe it is appropriate. I'm not saying it's uh, inappropriate in all cases, but here I'll give you Kim, maybe, because that is a trend in Burton films, I would say, of having this. I mean, he's characterized. There's There's a Burton female figure that mm-hmm. you associate with his pictures, right. and often and she fits into that. They are not the; they don't have the most agency. But the whole neighborhood, Josh. Well, okay. there's not no, one no, no. character in the neighborhood no. who stands out well, except the Diane. Okay, character. well, you know what? In Frankenstein, there weren't too many nice people in the Pitchfork crowd either. But I don't hold that against the movie. This is the Pitchfork. Not as heightened. Not all this women. This is either. the Pitchfork crowd. I mean, that's that is the role of that subgroup, and they are supposed to represent. It, it is part of the satire. They are supposed to represent these other modes of either establishing some sort of identity within conformity that isn't any healthier or just being part of the pack. Mm -hmm. So as part of the pack, you know, you're not going to have the most pleasant figures. And I would say that Weispeg overrides all of that. Mm -hmm. I mean, she's not only so good here, but this is as much her story in a lot of ways as Edward's because they parallel each other. The movie essentially opens with her. That routine it doesn't close of selling. With her, of, it certainly doesn't close with no, her. It, it ends in pretty conventional It moves ways. over. It moves over into that love story for sure. Mm-hmm. But she is more integral than Kim in Edward's development, in his coming out to understand his own value. But Burton does ultimately and, throw her to the side because he's more well, interested in those faces and them being in love with each other and no, looking I, at each other I don't through think, the TV I don't think it having throw, a magical connection. Throws her to the side is a little strong. The movie becomes a romance, yes, but I'm not going to hold that against it, especially when this story has the same qualities. I mean, when you see the Peg character, she is somewhat trapped. Just Being this Avon lady, that's her creative outlet as well. It's that wonderful scene where she notes that Edward has these scars, these self-inflicted scars, and so she's going to put her talents to covering them up with some sort of ridiculous makeup concoction that she has to call the Avon hotline to to Mm -hmm. get the recipe for. And that is almost her 
returning to him, the snipping of the thread that he does for her. It's very much a back and forth. They're parallel figures. So I'm I'm just afraid that Peg covers all those other sins. I'm glad she does for you, Josh. Obviously, she didn't for me. And I think that what it boils down to is what you're choosing to see as satire, I see as more a reflection of the fact that most every character in this film is pretty slight. They're defined by their behavioral tics and by their quirks and by, unfortunately, in most cases, their basis sensibilities. And so I felt as I really made my way through this film that we were only getting brief glimpses below the surface of these characters and also beneath the surface of this space. So as much as I appreciated some of the filmmaking and as much as I did ultimately appreciate Depp's performance, there was something that was always keeping me at a little bit of a distance with this film, unfortunately. I think the score was part of it. I love Elfman. I really do. I love their collaboration. There are moments here that are sublime, but... There's also a lot of music. Yeah, I wonder. A if, lot of it. See, I I think it's it's maybe his definitive score for Burton, and I think this may be an issue of coming to one of their collaborations after you've seen so many, and it seems maybe like it's not recycling, but what was really there at the beginning, because it's very different than in like Beetlejuice, I feel. Mm -hmm. There's more of a um, ethereal contemplative quality to this, whereas Beetlejuice is extremely manic. So at the time that this came out, it was familiar in the sense that it fit the story and uh, there were musical themes that were familiar, but it had enough distinction to, for me at least, feel like, oh wow, this, this is like these two are really hitting their stride at the same time together for the right story in the right way. But after umpteen Burton Elfman scores, maybe maybe that gets yeah, lost no, a little bit. That's that's a valid point. That might be it. I just felt like compared to some other films that I've seen, and I'm probably wrong if you really broke it down minute by minute, frame by frame, it felt a little overscored to me. I had never noticed before how often even the most mundane moments had that score. Oh, it's it's throughout. No, it, I think you're right really about pumping that. Along, it is throughout. So, yeah. Well, Edward Scissorhands is probably available in some kind of whimsically designed special edition DVD for Burton lovers out there like you, Josh, or via most streaming platforms for the less obsessive of you out there. You know what? I have one of those, but it's for a nightmare before Christmas. <laughs> of course you do. If you agree or disagree with our takes, if you've hopefully revisited Edward Scissorhands recently, email us at feedback at filmspotting.net. All right. It's our turn to get reviewed, Adam. When we come back, we'll have listeners' thoughts on our last Massacre Theater performance. If our egos aren't too crushed, we'll play a new edition. Stay with us. A woman came up to me and said I'd like to poison your mind With wrong ideas that appeal to you Though I am not unkind She looked at me, I looked at something Written across her scalp And these are the words that it faintly said As I tried to call for help There's only one thing that I know how to do well And I've often been told that you only can do What you know how to do well And that's be you Be what you're like Be like yourself And so I'm having a wonderful time, but I'd rather be whistling in the dark, 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 whistling in the dark. There's only one thing that I like, and that is whistling in the dark. A man came up to me and said, I'd like to change your mind. Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit is a bi-weekly podcast hosted by BuzzFeed's Allison Wilmore and Matt Singer of Screen Crush, focusing on the world of online movies. 
more information at filmspottingsvu.com or subscribe to the show on iTunes. Hi there, listeners over at the Film Spotting Mothership. This is Allison Wilmore from the Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit podcast. Here to let you know that in our new episode, Matt Singer and I will be taking a look at Netflix's first original scripted film, Beasts of No Nation. Is this the future of cinema? And if so, does that actually make us the new Film Spotting Mothership? Tune in to find out. Beasts of No Nation is the story of a West African boy who becomes a child soldier, and we'll be recommending some other Africa-set films and TV shows you can rent or stream at home right now. To listen, search for us in iTunes or check us out at filmspottingsvu.com. The sound of action speaking louder than words. Welcome back to Film Spotting. Part of the trailer there for The Assassin from Taiwan's Ho Shao Shen. Ho won the Best Director Prize at this year's Cannes Film Festival for the movie, which we'll review on next week's show along with a top five to be determined. We've got hopefully a very fun edition of Massacre Theater coming up in a moment. But first, we did want to get to a few notes, a little bit of housekeeping here. Criterion's Restored Apu Trilogy from the great Satyajit Ray is available now via streaming on Amazon and Google Play. We give a hat tip here to film spotting unofficial resident Apu Trilogy fan Ben Haworth in Houston, Texas. We heard from Ben a couple times during our Ray Marathon, Josh. And if you do want to go back, if you weren't part of that marathon, you didn't get to play along, go to filmspotting.net, click on the marathons link at the top of the page. But with Criterion restoring that, and unfortunately we didn't get to see it when it played here in Chicago at the Music Box, but now with those editions coming out and being available via streaming on those platforms. Definitely a good time to become familiar with Ray if you aren't already. Also wanted to share a promotional note that came to us from a longtime listener. He is a film professor at Oberlin, Josh Alberto Zambenedetti. Great great Italian name. And he is the producer of a film called Before Neorealism, Italy's Forgotten Cinema. That's coming up November 19th. So a little ways off, but we did want to plug that. I can't wait to see it. Hopefully I'll be available that night as I am a fan of Italian film and don't know anything about Italian cinema pre-neorealism there in the late 40s and early 50s. So if you're interested in that screening and you want more information, we'll link to more in our show notes at filmspotting.net. That's also where you'll find our weekly poll question. And on the last show, Josh and guest host Michael Phillips shared with you this deathmatch, a director deathmatch. David Gordon Green with his new film, Our Brand is Crisis, coming out next week. It's his second film of 2015 after Manglehorn starring Al Pacino. We pitted him against Jeff Nichols, a fan favorite here on the show, a favorite of the hosts here as well, the director of Take Shelter and Mud, his first movie, Shotgun Stories. And... I can't say I'm that surprised. So far, the death match is a blood bath. Not even close. Not even close. Nichols just slaying David Gordon Green. They're not holding it against him at all, apparently, that his movie Midnight Special, I think, was on our top five most anticipated movies of 2012. And it still hasn't come out yet. It's been pushed back a few times. And we're hoping we're going to see it in early 2016 at this point. But if you haven't voted, please do vote now at filmspotting. Maybe you can help even it out a little bit. I don't think, though, that Mr. Green has much of a chance, unfortunately. And Josh, one of our patented production meetings on air, Sam and I were kicking around this weekend, as we like to do. We like to look at these polls and see how poorly we did based on the voting or the comments. Sometimes and yank them sometimes and put yank up them new start ones. Over. So Sam actually, he held back. He restrained himself. He said, I'm not sure it's really worth it. Why do we want to put David Gordon Green against another director only to watch him get killed? But I'm kind of curious. So it's your call. 
You ultimately get to make the call here, whether wow. we just call this one. I mean, it's really like 85-15. We just call it in favor of Jeff Nichols, and we give a little mercy to David Gordon Green, and we pit him against the other director that Sam was really considering, and we kicked around as well, another David who seems appropriate in terms of catalog and style, and that's David O. Russell. So do you think that if we put Gordon Green against hmm. David O. Russell— a, the first question is, do you think it would be a little bit more even? And B, do you think it's worth putting up on the website and oh, seeing how it comes out? Absolutely. We should just do it. Okay, let's I do mean, it. 2.0. The 2.0 director's death it, match. It feels good to have power like this. No wonder you guys are just so willy-nilly <laughs> about it. polls once you can. Um, sure, let's see what happens. That They don't seem quite as... They both started as indie guys, though, and moved on to some I Hollywood fair. I guess that's fair true. And... I mean, in a way, maybe they are more closely matched than Nichols, who has you know just a handful of films compared to Green's many. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Boy. Yeah, let, let's see what happens. I think I might still not go with Green. In that... I don't think I, I would either. I wonder if there's a sense of exhaustion with David Gordon Green. Um, this sort of, you know, the output being so frequent in the last few years, maybe that's a little bit behind it. But yeah, let, let's see what happens. Okay. We want to know what you think. You can vote now in the 2.0 deathmatch at filmspotting.net. Josh, I understand you also want to promote a little activity you have going on behind the scenes here. How is the book coming along? <laughs> well, um, you can find out how it's going along because I set up a Tumblr page where I'm sharing the progress. And maybe that shows you. You're instead so edgy. Of, instead of You're so act- young and yeah. edgy, Josh. No, no kidding. Instead of actually writing, I'm just setting up Tumblr pages for it. So that might give you I some can idea. That. <laughs> no, I'm making progress. Um, so look for it there. The you know the working titles, movies, are prayers. And you can find it on Tumblr. Under that handle, uh, as I talked about on the show, the idea is basically looking at about 10 different types of prayer and looking at how movies function in the same way. So I'm using the Tumblr page as an idea board, um, quotes that I've come across that might head me in a certain direction, clips from films that I know I'm going to talk about in a certain chapter. I've got those up with some ideas there um, and images as well. So it would be a good place. I know listeners love to give us suggestions when it comes to top five lists or polls or anything like tell that. Tell us how we're getting something wrong. Uh, that and, you know, do our work for us. Yes, that's my so, favorite part. So if anyone wants to go to that Tumblr page and, you know, suggest movies for different sorts of prayers that they're familiar with that I might want to consider, I would appreciate it. Maybe it would help me get some actual work done. We'll link to that Tumblr page, of course, in the show notes at filmspotting.net. With that, let's move on to Massacre Theater. We perform a scene badly. You get a chance at winning a prize. Last time, we massacred this. You don't know my name, do you? Is it Stanford? I should just kick your ass. How do you go to a party and you meet Amelia somebody? Ritter, but you prefer Amy. You're from Orinda. Your father's in commercial real estate and your mother's 10 years sober. What's my major? Trombone. Really? I remember something about a trombone. Tu fais l'amour à la jolie fille et la Mmm, French. Oui? Your major's French. Yours? Mine? I don't have one. You haven't declared? I don't go to school. That's Justin Timberlake playing Sean Parker and Dakota Johnson as Amelia in The Social Network, which was written by Aaron Sorkin and directed by David Fincher. That massacre was part of episode 559, accompanying a split review of the new film Steve Jobs and our top five director back-to-back movies, Steve Jobs and The Social Network, two movies that have a few things in common, including screenwriter Aaron Sorkin. We heard from Don Polvorosa 
in Martinez, California. The chosen scene takes place in Palo Alto, and the dialogue references Stanford, which is located in Palo Alto, a location that is integral to all things tech, especially the inception of Apple and Facebook, Steve Jobs, and Mark Zuckerberg. Sean Parker is one of the speakers in the scene, and he too is a creation of the tech sphere and in the social network, was advocating that Zuckerberg relocate to Palo Alto. So there you go, Don, very familiar with her California locations. A few more connections here from Jared Dennison in Palatine, Illinois. Both have supporting actors playing atypical roles for themselves, Rogan and Timberlake. Both had mentions of Harvard's paper, The Crimson, Eduardo's Animal Cruelty, and Lisa's writing, along with name-dropping Bill Gates, who will probably get his own biopic from Aaron Sorkin any day now. And finally, David Fincher almost directed both films. Did you know that? I did not know that. Okay. Matt Hooper in Rogers Park, Chicago, says, not surprisingly, given his previous work, Josh fully encapsulates the overt sensuality of the anonymous Stanford student from the film. His reading of the line, I should just kick your ass, was a beautiful balance of flirty aggression and playfulness. Really comes to mind every time. And the French, smooth, soft, and milky like the creamiest brie cheese. Oh, thank you, Matt. As for Adam, he brought all the memorable charisma and charm of the members of NSYNC, not named Justin Timberlake. (laughs) No small feat. <laughs> name Story another of member. My life. Name another member of NSYNC. Oh, I think there's one named Chaz. I was going to go with a Joey. <laughs> there is Wasn't a Joey. Wasn't there a Joey? Joey Fatone. Yes. I think you're more Lance. Jo- Lance Bass. Uh, yeah. I think you were the Joey. Jonathan Anderson wrote in, kind of surprised that Adam, the ambassador from Fifty Shades of Grey to the Film Geek United Nations. That's my new business card. That is. Take the Dakota Johnson Okay, card. so. Are you still on that bandwagon? Are you still. Why would I have any reason to get off? Fifty Shades of Grey, the only good thing in Black Mass. Well, that's not true. There were a couple other supporting performances, but. No, I so, meant, I didn't mean Dakota Johnson. I oh, meant 50 the Fifty Shades, Shades of Grey bandwagon. Yeah, I actually, I actually rewatched it about a month ago. Held up. Held up nicely, Josh. I, I'm not even going to bring but, up all the things we should have been watching so this year. Funny story and you've about seen Fifty Shades of Grey twice. twice. Dakota Johnson, I'm watching the scene from the social network to prepare for Massacre Theater. I did prepare, despite my just <laughs> horrid performance as Justin Timberlake playing Sean Parker. Joey. Yeah, exactly. And I'm watching the actress on screen, and I'm thinking, first, man, she's really familiar. And then I'm thinking, man, she's really good. Even in this one scene, she really is so good. I know I know that face. I've seen her in other films. They should have have cast her in Fifty Shades of Grey. I'll have to look up who that is because she's really talented. And then we start getting the Massacre Theater feedback, and (laughs) it's Dakota Johnson, and I passed up my chance to play her. I can't believe it. I think this is the problem with your performances. When you're studying a scene— you're supposed to study both people in the scene, uh-huh. not just who I you're only paid playing. Attention. Well, I paid attention to the one I wasn't playing. <laughs> That's my problem, Josh. Okay. But she really is so much better than Timberlake in that scene. All right. Reach into the film spotting hat and pick out this week's winner. That would be Ashley Adum from Florence, Alabama. Or maybe Adum. It's A-D-U-M. Alabama. Adum. Maybe. Adum probably makes Adam. more sense. All right. Congratulations, Ashley. We apologize for probably massacring your last name. Two ways. Email feedback at filmspotting.net to claim your very own film spotting t shirt. Dracula requires presence. It, it's all in the eyes and the voice and the head. That's right. That's right. You seem a little agitated. You want to go outside and get some air? I'm ready now. Roll the camera. We've got a last-minute replacement here for Massacre Theater. We were all set to go with a movie that did not make either of our top fives or will not make Should either of our top fives. Should we just say what it was? Yeah, let's say it. Pump up the volume. Yeah. We thought... The that, Great Christian Slater. Yeah, the I Great Christian Slater. I did want to hear your Slater via Nicholson or we'll Nicholson via Slater, but I'm sure we'll have another opportunity for that. Heather's is waiting to be massacred for sure. But 
we did find just before sitting down to record this scene. Sam sent it over. We were going to find use for it somewhere else in this show. And it was just too good, too juicy to pass up for Massacre Theater. So, Josh, I'm going to give you the juicy part. I'm once again going to play the really bland guy. Yeah. I mean, he's pretty bland in I think this it's, scene. I think it's typecasting. I'm either the woman or the really bland do guy. Your, do your Joey Fatone. <laughs> do my Joey. That's, I think it's Joey Fatone. Yeah, I am. Do that do and it. you'll be just fine. <laughs> I will. You started off. This is a movie that ties in with one of our topics on this week's show. That's all we're going to say. If you know this movie, if you've seen it, we don't think you'll forget this memorable scene. So you start. I'm going to give you the action. Are you ready? Okay. We'll see. And action. Sir Knight, I am sending you on a knight's errand. You will report to Captain Cargill at the furthermost outpost of the realm. My personal seal will assure your safety through many miles of wild and hostile country. I was wondering. Yes? How will I be getting there? You think I don't know? No, sir. It's just that I don't know. Hold your tongue. I happen to be in a generous mood. See that peasant out there? He calls himself Timmins. He's going there this very afternoon. Ride with him. He knows the way. Thank you. That is all. Sir Knight... I just pissed in my pants, and nobody can do anything about it. And, and scene. scene. I, I felt that Ooh. one all the way from here, Josh. <laughs> I, think, I think that was profound. You nailed it. And now I have to go change. Yes, you do. You know what scene? We just massacred. Please email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. Your deadline is Sam's birthday, Monday. November 9th. How nice. The winner will be selected randomly from all the correct entries and announced on the show in a couple of weeks. To get official Massacre Theater rules, visit filmspotting.net. Your mind. It is the center of your life. It is everything you hear. Everything you see. Everything you feel, it is everything you are. How would you know if someone stole your mind? Speaking of movies from 1990 and blind spots for me, it is true that my entire top five list is probably invalid for most of our listeners because I have not seen that Arnold Schwarzenegger classic Total Recall. Mars. <laughs> I get that reference. That's about it, Josh. So I do need to see Total Recall. Never saw the remake either. Did you see? I didn't see the, the remake. Knowing you, you like it better. I, well, you know, I might. I might. I don't recall being that thrilled with the original Total Recall, but I haven't seen it since 90, so okay. who knows? Not going to make our list, obviously. No. Then it was the number five highest grossing movie of 1990. The number one, the movie we had some fun with at the opening of the show, Ghost. Number two, Home Alone. Number three, Pretty Woman. Number four, Dances with Wolves. You will not find any of those movies among our top five. That's also a list that could not exist today in terms of the box office top five. I mean, the no. only one on there that would have a shot in Total this Recall. movie climate, Total Recall. Yeah. 
like a known would be commodity totally the, sci-fi. Uh, yep, and the others, no way. Exactly. Well, let's get into our top five. Josh, do you have any regrets you want to get out of the way before we jump into your number five? Oh, regrets. So you didn't see Total Recall 1990. I didn't see Misery and have never seen Misery. Okay, um, I have. Seen I know Misery. it's not considered a classic, but people generally like yeah, it. Yeah, solid so, film. Um, would have liked to have caught up with that. And Kurosawa's Dreams was in '90. I know that too is sort of an end of career film that uh, is nowhere near in esteem for people than his earlier stuff. But still, Kurosawa picture should see it before making a year-end list. Agreed, but, but I am right there with you, unfortunately. Right. You're number five. My number five is Days of Being Wild. This is Wong Kar Wai's second film. And it was interesting to see here, going back to it for the first time for me, these little bursts of genre action, like stabs of violence, or there's even a shootout at the end that seems at odds with that distinctive language style I've come to associate with him and that he would eventually fully embrace in his later pictures. Now, there are things like, you know, this is full of drifting curtains and we have uh, falling rain in so many scenes, spinning fans very slowly, that sort of stuff. It it works in a lot of its sequences the way something like In the Mood for Love does, where you almost feel your heart rate slowing down as you watch the picture. It's set in 1960 and it follows the intertwining romantic relationships of a handful of young adults. So you have this brutish playboy. He's played by Leslie Chung, a demure shopkeeper played by Maggie Chung, a feisty dancer, that's Karina Lau, and then an apartment building guard played by Andy Lau. Their stories, though, it's not so much about their individual narratives. That's sort of secondary. This is mostly a poetic rumination on what it feels like trying to find your place while at the same time not wanting to be tied down at all when you're in your 20s. Time appropriately is also a recurring motif here. There are frequent shots of a wall clock and references to what has happened in the past for these characters. For each of them, you get the impression watching them that what they share in common time is it's at once this trap. So it's moving too slowly for how fast they like to move for their heedless desires. But it's also this curse because each passing second when you see that hand go around on the clock, you can feel to them is this this lost moment of youth that they're not they don't want to see that go. So really enjoyed catching up with Days of Being Wild. That's one I still need to catch up with another regret for me. I'm looking over my list here, Josh, and I've got four movies I've only seen once and one movie I've seen 4,000 times but have nothing to say about it. So this should be a relatively brief top five. All right. My number five is a movie that I remember catching for the first time in the mid-'90s, so shortly after it came out here. I believe I was home from college on a break and was up late at night flipping channels, and I got sucked into this film and these characters and a storyline that I thought was fiction. I didn't realize it was true, and I was waiting for this legal mystery to all be unraveled at the end of the movie, kind of like a Law and Order episode. I was going to finally learn the truth, and I couldn't wait for it, only to find that it turns out this is all a true story. And even sitting here right now, we still don't know the total truth, and that is the case of Klaus von Bülow, played by Jeremy Irons in the movie Reversal of Fortune. Glenn Close plays Sonny von Bülow, who was this rich socialite, and as the story goes, in 1980, her husband Klaus administered an insulin overdose, and she went into a coma and was in a vegetative state for actually 28 years. She ended up dying in that state in 2008, and he was first tried and convicted of killing her, and then there was a second trial. Alan Dershowitz, very famous over the years for trials like O.J. Simpson, but at the time, I think this was maybe his first real big 
highly public case, he came in to defend him because even though morally he wasn't sure that he was on the same ground or wanted to be on the same ground with Klaus, he did think that there were some abuses of justice. So he defended him. And I'm going to do here, Josh, what I usually do when I have nothing to say about a movie because I haven't seen it in 20 years. I'm going to quote Roger Ebert, the Gospel of Ebert. He says, Reversal of Fortune is above all a triumph of tone. The director, Barbette Schroeder, and the writer, Nicholas Kazan, have not made a docudrama or a sermon, but a film about personalities. The most extraordinary personality in the film is Klaus von Bülow's, as he is played by Jeremy Irons. He appears as a man with affections and bizarre mannerisms, a man who speaks as if he lifted his words from an arch drawing room comedy, who smokes a cigarette as if hailing a taxi. Irons is able to suggest subtly that some of this over-the-top behavior is the result of fear. Von Bülow cannot modulate his tone, cannot find the right note, because beneath his facade, he is quaking. And I think there's a really strong insight there, because this Von Bülow character is sort of the Jinx's Robert Durst before we all got to meet him through the HBO show last summer. But if Von Bülow was just strange and just enigmatic and pompous and sort of evil, it wouldn't be a great performance. And this one, I think, rightfully deserved the Academy Award that Irons did win that year for Best Actor. He makes him... Irons does a more complex figure than that, more human than that. And there's a great scene where Alan is angry with him as he's getting in his limo to leave. I don't know the whole truth. I don't know what happened to her. Wish I can believe you. You know, it's very hard to trust someone you don't understand. You're a very strange man. You have no idea. So that line, you have no idea. As I remembered it, I remembered Irons delivering it with much more bravado and relish, sort of really chewing the line a little bit, like he's got a little gleam in his eye. You could almost see it twinkling. But I rewatch it, Josh, and it turns out it comes across as equally as tragic. It almost suggests more that he's been cursed. He's been cursed by just how strange he is. And there's actually some pain there. So there's that hint of pain. There's that hint of that gleam as well, that he's being mischievous and he just can't help himself. But Irons does manage to encapsulate all that. So I'm a big fan of Reversal of Fortune, even though, as I said, I haven't actually caught up with it again in 20 years. For now, it's my number five. Still need to see that one myself. All right. At number four, I went with my best picture pick for our contemporary Iranian cinema marathon. It's Close Up, Abbas Kiarostami's meta-exercise in film theory that, for me, also happens to be a completely enthralling story. Here's the basics. It stars Hossein Sabzian, who plays a version of himself. Sabzian once actually posed as famous Iranian director Mohsen Makhmalbaf and conned a wealthy family into believing he would use their home in his next film. The charade eventually unraveled and Sabzian was taken to court. So for close-up, Kiarostami does this documentary-like restaging of the events, even including the trial, and he uses many of the real people involved. Because I've talked about the film on the show before, this also made my list of the top five movies about fame, our non-Hollywood edition. I'm going to share someone else's thoughts here, too. This comes from Jonathan Rosenbaum, whose writing in the Chicago Reader was my introduction to Iranian cinema. He said this in his review, Close Up is a dense and subtle masterpiece from Iran. No other film does more to interrogate certain aspects of the documentary form itself. So that was one of the real pleasures of our marathon, certainly one of the best films of 1990. Can't argue with you there. My number four is David Lynch's The Wizard of Oz, a.k.a. Wild at Heart. Because Nicolas Cage impersonating Elvis in a snakeskin jacket, because Willem Dafoe as maybe the all-time cinematic scumbag Bobby Peru, and because Diane Ladd losing her ever-loving mind 
as the Wicked Witch of the West. I just think few movies are as much twisted fun as Wild at Heart. And one of those scenes with Laura Dern, who's very good in this film as she is whenever she works with Lynch, a scene with her and Defoe as Bobby Peru made my top five Lynch scenes. So a film that is certainly its own sort of bizarre oddity that you would expect from David Lynch. But again, a road movie that I always have a blast with. My number six almost squeaked onto my list. And I had a scene from there as well when we did our top five Lynch scenes. Really fun film. All right, we'll dig into the rest of our top films of 1990, or as we like to call it, the year of the Pesci, when we come back. Stay with us. Istanbul, Constantinople. Now it's Istanbul, now Constantinople. Been a long time gone. Constantinople, now it's Turkish delight. On a moonlit night. Every gal in Constantinople lives in Istanbul, now Constantinople. So if you a date in Constantinople, she'll be waiting in Istanbul. Even old New York was once New Amsterdam. Why they changed it, I can't say. People just liked it better that way. So take me back to Constantinople. No, you can't go back to Constantinople. Been a long time gone. Constantinople, why did Constantinople get the works? That's nobody's business but the Turks. Hey, folks, just want to jump in for a second to get to a couple donations and a bit of listener feedback and other listener notes, Josh, and also highlight our featured musical artist this week. It is the sounds of They Might Be Giants from their 1990 album, Flood. It was the band's third album and remains its best-selling album. More information at theymightbegiants.com. That seems like a band you would have been a fan of, Josh. Didn't own it, but was quite familiar with all the songs. I like them. A few donors this week we want to mention. Stephen in Sagan, Texas, who says, This is my first time writing in about five years. I started listening to the show back in late 2009 with episode 278, in which Adam and Maddie discuss where the wild things are. At the time, I was desperately looking for something to help put into words why I love that film so much, and Film Spotting provided that for me. Had you not liked where the wild things are, I probably would have put down the show and never listened to it again. But thankfully, you liked it, and six years later, I'm still listening to the show and have it to thank for getting me through many hard nights, inspiring me to think deeply about film, teach art history to high school students at a homeschool co-op, and write my own movies like so many of your listeners. So it sounds like Stephen really is a multitasker, Josh. He could write your book and co-host this show. We need to get him on that. He says, I don't have a film spotting nickname. I didn't come up with a drinking game for the show. Maddie never even said a cool fact about the town I live in. I am simply a humble listener who thought it was about time to give a small amount of money to help with the great work you've been doing for so many years. He closes with the PS. I'm unclear if you've ever come down to Texas, but if you haven't, we would love to have you. Can we just pretend like we did? I know, because (laughs) now I feel really bad, but we did tease last summer that we were going to come down to Austin for a live show. It's going to happen at some point. I mean, Mm -hmm. it it is. It just didn't happen last summer, and I don't know that it's going to happen next summer, but I can't wait to get down there at some point. We also have a note from a new $5 a month donor, Josh. He is Griffin Gulledge in Indian Springs, Alabama. After well over a year of listening for free, I just became a $5 a month donor to the podcast. I have you all to thank for the countless films I have been introduced to from listening. I came to you through the Maleficent Review and Disney Top 5 Villains list, and I've been with you ever since. Although it may be more accurate to say that I became a Larson donor, I'm not sure I've taken Adam's side once in a debate except on Pixar. Nonetheless, the insights of both have given me new eyes to see when it comes to film of any kind. Keep up the good work. P.S. Maybe the best Cold War film is Spies Like Us. See, just when I'm ready to write Griffin off completely and just 
just say that he can't be redeemed. I'm not a fan mm-hmm. of his because clearly he isn't a fan of mine. He goes and completely redeems himself by mentioning the With brilliance that is Spies Like, like us. us. Oh, I love wow. Spies Like Us. Uh, yeah, I, I remember laughing a few times. <laughs> Well, that's all that really matters, Josh. It was a comedy. A couple other notes we wanted to get to here. I felt bad because I was looking through the email, finally got to catch up on about 500 emails over the weekend, Josh. And back on episode 557, we mentioned a donation from Alex V in Philly, but we forgot his note. So why don't we go ahead and share a little bit of his thoughts here as he is engaged in the practice of film criticism. I've been tuning into the show for a few months now, and I wanted to say that I second Ryan Johnson's assessment of film criticism in episode 500. The joy of it is in watching another mind at work as it processes, analyzes, swoons over, defends, and crusades for their interpretation of something. Listening to both of you do just that is a genuine pleasure, so I've sent a small donation of $5 to show my thanks. I'd give more, but I am a journalist, which, as you know, is not an engineer, doctor, lawyer, or stockbroker. Really, it's more like charitable work, except there are no tax deductions. On that note, I wanted to put on your radar some of what I am doing here in Philadelphia in terms of film writing. Along with another reporter, I write a weekly column that aims to draw attention to the physical side of Philly's film scene, as in the underground screenings, film festivals, local filmmakers, and all the miscellany around the edges. Basically, the idea is to help pull people away from their laptop screens and Netflix accounts and make film watching a public activity once again. While Philly is no Chicago when it comes to film criticism, we are trying in our humble way. Thanks again for your podcast. I'll make sure to write again and donate again. Well, thank you for that donation, and thanks for sending us those comments and the links, Alex. We will include some links to a couple of the articles you sent us in the show notes at filmspotting.net. Finally, a note from a listener, Josh, in Belgium. Maybe you remember a couple weeks ago, we featured a donor from Belgium here in this segment, and I mentioned that I wasn't really familiar with Belgian cinema except for the Dardens, and Casper Peppermans from Herent, Belgium, wrote in and said he was amazed. You don't know any Belgian movies except the Darden brothers? I was shocked. I know we are a small country, but I recommend you to think about Belgian movies because we have some nice ones, and I cannot imagine you do not know a few of these movies. So we actually sent over 14 movies, 14 Belgian films that he thinks one we of should which, know. One of which I see here we reviewed on the show. We did. The Broken Circle Breakdown. The Broken Circle Breakdown. So that's one. Check. That's one of the Check. three that I marked <laughs> that weren't necessarily movies I have all seen, but at least I had heard of Bullhead from 2011. I remember that film making the rounds, but I didn't have time to catch up with it. The two movies that I have seen from Belgium, The Broken Circle Breakdown, a movie I liked quite a bit and do recommend. And then the first movie Casper mentioned was Man Bites Dog from 1992. It was a movie I always regretted that I hadn't seen. I was ashamed of it because it's come up a lot over the years in listener emails. And so when we were doing our top five films of 1992, a month or two ago, I finally sat down and watched it thinking it might just crack my top five. It did not crack my top five, but still it gave me a good excuse to catch up with it. Alas, those are the only two of the 14 I have seen. And Josh, I'm guessing you've only seen the one broken circle breakdown. Well, I see dog of Flanders isn't on this list. I believe I mentioned that last time. Okay. So We really are experts in Belgian cinema, after all. If you want to know what movies Casper sent over, we will mention all of them in our notes, filmspotting.net. Hey there, Film Spotting listeners. Jim DeRogatis here with my partner, Greg Cott. And as the hosts of Sound Opinions, if there's one thing we have learned from decades as rock critics, it's, uh, to paraphrase Hunter Thompson there, Greg, the music industry is a cruel and shallow money trench. (laughs) Very dark side. 
You know, there's another guy, Jim, who uh, got the music industry almost as well as Hunter Thompson did, and that was uh, filmmaker Robert Altman. His 1975 country music satire, Nashville, that captures the absurdity of the music business better than almost any other film I can think of. So we're going to take our Chicago-area listeners on a cinematic trip to Music City when Sound Opinions at the Movies presents a special 40th anniversary screening of Robert Altman's masterpiece, Nashville, on November 11th at the Music Box Theater. Jim and I will be on hand to introduce the film and talk about its Oscar-winning soundtrack. Tickets and more info are at soundopinions.org, and you get a discount if you buy in advance. This is Martin McDonough, and you're listening to Film Spotting. This is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar with Josh Larson. We're continuing our top five lists of the best films of 1990, the year that Edward Scissorhands came out, our Blind Cow review. I like that. We may have to use Blind Cow down the road if this happens again, where one of us has seen it and one of us hasn't earlier in the show. And I have a feeling Edward Scissorhands may just come up again later in this segment. Spoiler alert, Josh, you're number three. It's not at number three. Goodfellas is at number three. And maybe it should be higher, I can see by the no. look on your I face. Mean, no. But may I, may I propose maybe it should be lower? I, I don't know. So I'm going to split the difference no, you right can now. Stop. It's okay. I'm going to put it at number three. Stop while you're ahead. And largely because it's been so long since I've seen Scorsese's definitive mob picture, probably maybe around the time The Departed is when I last revisited it. Well, that's not that long ago. Yeah, but for a movie like that, you know, some people watch it on a quarterly basis. The performances, undoubtedly, they're electric across the board. Not only Joe Pesci, Ray Liotta, too, and, of course, De Niro. The set pieces. I mean, that Copacabana Steadicam shot, it's become one of the most famous in all of cinema. Deservedly so. Even people who aren't movie geeks and get into that stuff, if you, you say the Copacabana shot from Goodfellas, they know what you're talking about. Now, one of the reasons maybe I was far less appreciative of Scorsese's Wolf of Wall Street than you, Adam, was because I found it to be a weaker strain of tea than this, the the charming criminal rascal and how we're supposed to process watching and being a part of his life. But what I'd really like to do, and again, here's why it's at number three, I think, I'd like to revisit those two closer together and see what they might say about each other. I mean, there's a there's a very good chance that Goodfellas could raise Wolf of Wall Streets, in my opinion, and mm-hmm. uh, they'd both elevate each other. Maybe I'd I'd feel even stronger that it's a little bit of a, a less successful retread. We'll see. But that's for another day. For now, Goodfellas, I have a number three. No, that would be a fun project. They are undoubtedly connected in some ways. They are both characters in DiCaprio and Ray Liotta who are doing whatever they can to not be a normal everyday schmuck like Leota ends up, sorry, spoiler alert if you haven't seen Goodfellas, at the end of that movie. That's what they are hoping to avoid. They're striving for something else. They're more ambitious, even if they're destructive along the way. And of course, whatever that says about the American spirit. Of course, it's always hard when you're comparing any Scorsese film to Goodfellas or Raging Bull. And I made that mistake with Casino, a movie that even though I've never seen it in its entirety, now whenever it's on, I get sucked into watching scenes from it. And it's really pretty good. But I always saw it as basically Goodfellas light. And I probably need to get over that. My number three is a film from one of my favorite directing pairs, the Coen brothers. The movie is Miller's Crossing. Again, a movie I've only seen once. Back around 1991, just after it came out, I was watching it on VHS. Yes, youngsters, VHS tape. I suggested it as a sacred cow because I love the Coen brothers so much. 
And this is a movie for me that I always rate high because I have such fond memories of it. I know how highly regarded it is, but I almost feel like I haven't seen it. And I'll tell you, as I was trying to come up with something insightful to say for this top five pick, I found some interesting articles about it and I started reading them and I realized that it was almost like spoiling the movie for me. That even though there are some indelible scenes and indelible performances that stand out in my mind, Watching it again would almost be like watching it for the first time. And I want to have that experience. It's such a twisty plot, too. It is. It is a little bit. And I remember finding it a little bit too labyrinthine when I saw it back in 1991, probably. But the language, the style, all those things that we come to appreciate about the Coen Brothers. Then when I saw it, I certainly was familiar with Raising Arizona. I didn't know it was the Coen Brothers, but I saw that movie a lot as a kid and thought it was hilarious. Miller's Crossing was the first movie I watched knowing it was a Coen Brothers film, and that supposedly carried some weight with it. But again, just badly need to revisit it. I know I love Gabriel Byrne's performance and Finney and Turturro and the banter, everything about the style, not only I said of the the production design and the look of it, but the banter. And speaking of former top five lists, when we did our top five Coen Brothers scenes, that look into your heart scene is one of those sequences with Totoro and Byrne that you just don't shake. Even 20 years later, that's when I remember the intensity of watching that sequence. I think it was my number two on that top five list. So can't wait to see it again. But Miller's Crossing number three maybe would be higher for me if I saw that one a little bit more recently. I think I've spoiled a pick or two of yours already, so you just spoiled one of mine. Not my number two pick, though. For that, I'm going back to what we reviewed at the top of the show, Edward Scissorhands. I think we got into just about everything that's so great about that movie, but there are a few names. I mentioned the team that Burton often worked with to create what is the signature Burton style, and one of those is absolutely Bo Welch for his production design. The castle here, you brought it up where we're first placed there, and then the camera angles are even all from that hilltop castle, Uh, but it is just so evocative of the interior emotional state of Edward Scissorhands, and that carries through. And I like his production design for Suburbia, too, the, the pastel color-coordinated mm-hmm. where these this angry horde that you didn't quite buy matched their cars or their houses. I just loved all of that. I, I thought it was just spot on. Vincent Price is so good in the film as well. We we just mentioned him sort of in passing. He gets one of the great movie death scenes. Yeah, where it's fantastic. The, the surprise... Just on his face. And then and it everything. drains away. I mm-hmm. mean, he's so good. Stan Winston did the makeup and effects, And so he was responsible in his team for those scars crisscrossing Edward's face. And I mentioned how funny I thought this was, even funnier than I remembered when I recently revisited it. Alan Arkin had so much to do with that. I mean, his take on the oblivious dad, the cheerful oblivious dad who just doesn't even bat an eye at this guy coming into their house and sort of becomes his defender. I could never go back and forth. Like, would I, would I like a dad like this who's pretty much laid back, whatever happens, happens? Or is that because he's just completely checked out in an unhealthy way? I mm-hmm. think Arkin is hysterical. So Edward Scissorhands is my number two. I do love those pastel colored houses and cars. And we touched on those during the discussion. But what I love about it, Josh, is the way that if you were going to describe an environment that was filled with a bunch of conformists and people who were pretty miserable, you would envision immediately a certain drabness. Bland, yeah. You would think bland, and you would think every house would look the same, but they would look the same in sort of a beige or tan or gray or white kind of way. And the fact that everything is so bright and vibrant and colorful, it deceives you for a second into thinking this place must be really bright. Fun, Exactly, and colorful and vibrant and all those things. So it's almost, again, keeping in the grotesque nature of those characters that they have to overdo it. Just like they make up their faces, they have to make up their lawns and everything else to 
try to convey to the world that they're happier than they really are. Yeah, it becomes garish, becomes assaulted. Yeah. yeah. Well, my number two is a film you already spoiled earlier with your picks, Josh. Close Up was your number four, the Abbas Kiarostami film. It's my number two. And Mark Kearney, who is from Essex Junction, Vermont, and who helps us out with our Facebook page, wrote in in response to a recent top five list with this. Adam, maybe you felt you had too many art house picks, great ones at that with Vera Diana and Teo Rema. But I was assuming one of you would have Kiarostami's Close Up as your number one pick for top five house guests. So perfect. This film is about a man, as you said, Josh, Hossein Sabzian, who enters the home of a well-to-do family as he's pretending to be a great Iranian director and Mohsen Makhmalbaf making his next movie. The film is a hybrid of fiction and documentary as the actors reenact the actual events interspersed with footage of the actual trial of Sabzian. I was shocked that a film with so many meta layers did not make your list. Certainly, it's kind of shocking that you love Close Up as much as I do, Josh, because of all those meta layers. And yes, it was part of our top five list movies about fame made your list and was number two on mine as well. And part of our Iranian cinema marathon, which I think was really transformative for both of us. And Kiristami now is one of those filmmakers that I think we both regard. We didn't really have the background before, but now we feel like is really one of the true cinematic masters working today. When we talked about it during our marathon, I quoted this from Kiristami. He said, I see very few films and very few videos. I'm not influenced by any particular director. My only influence is reality. Have you ever seen a film that resembles the ones that I've made? So isn't that interesting that someone who is known for being so meta, which usually means calling on cinematic conventions and other traditions and making references to other movies... I can't answer that question and say that I've seen any other films that resemble Kiarostami's films. I love how truly unique every one of his movies are, the ones that I have seen anyway. And as we also talked about during that marathon a lot, the beauty of Kiarostami is despite all that self-reflexivity, all those layers, there is some catharsis. There is always some understanding of these figures as people and people trying to connect with each other in the world in ways that fiction films often do, just straight ahead conventional narratives that are really trying to get us to that point. You wouldn't think that that that's the mission of a Kiarostami film, but it's there. It's there underneath all those layers. All right. Number one is my chance to convince you why Miller's Crossing should be higher on your list. It's my personal favorite Coen Brothers movie. Go to Letterboxd and you'll see I've got it ranked there right at the top. I will admit off the top that I have this there for nostalgic reasons. This was one of the first movies I took Debbie into downtown Chicago to see in high school. It was at the now defunct Water Tower Theaters. You know, I was classy, Adam. No suburban multiplex for mm. her, you know. Yeah. But it, it was similar. Like the Coen and Brothers. She married were, you anyway. <laughs> the, oh, yeah. The Coen Brothers were a name at that point for me because of Raising Arizona. I think that had been the first film I'd seen of theirs, then went back to Blood Simple. It's one I've watched a number of times since, and I do absolutely think it holds up on its own terms, though. In fact, I see this as a very crucial leap forward in the Coen's career from these stylish merry pranksters to really gifted cinematic philosophers. Miller's Crossing is where they got serious, even though, you know, on the surface, and some people write it off this way, that it's one of, it's just them aping another beloved genre, you know, making the period gangster film. But there's so much going on underneath for me. They are absolutely in control of every frame here. I mean, that opening where they just managed to make the dropping of the ice cubes into the glass, so riveting. But they also turn this into uh, this artful rumination on things like loyalty, 
honesty, self-sacrifice. You nailed the scene when you talked about it earlier. Nowhere in the Cohen canon, I think, are you going to find something that's as human or elemental or raw or really as beautiful because it takes place in that gorgeous pine forest as the scene of Jean Turturro begging for his life at the hands of Gabriel Byrne. I won't give away what happens there, but I think you could say that Miller's Crossing is a, a movie of it's a movie about grace gone wrong, but then offered anyway. And if it's not exactly clear what I mean by that, all you have to do is listen to a little bit of Carter Burwell's score. such a tender score and I think that captures really well what I'm trying to get at so for me Miller's Crossing the best Coen Brothers movie which means it has to be the number one movie of 1990 you don't have to twist my arm you really don't have to do a lot of work to convince me that Miller's Crossing deserves to be number one it just so happens to be behind two other masterpieces it was close a good up, year it was close a good up, year and here's where I say the most obvious thing I've ever said in 560 episodes in 10 years of doing this show and that's saying something the best film of 1990 was Goodfellas. Is it best Scorsese for you? Raging Bull probably still okay. has that honor, Josh, but it's a close, close second. And that's all I've got for you. <laughs> Those are our top five films. That. I don't need to say anything else. Goodfellas speaks for itself. You should at least quote from it. I mean, no. you know, that, that's the way no. you could really Sam seal can the just deal. cue up Layla. Okay. <laughs> as our outro. Okay. And I think that'll support anything that I'm trying to express here. It's Goodfellas. That's it, folks. Those are our top five movies of 1990. Do you have any honorable mentions that you haven't already mentioned? So it's always fun to do what would have been our top five then. I think we've talked about that before. And two of mine for this list I hadn't seen yet. So Close Up and Days of Being Wild would be off. The other three would have been on here. Taking those places, though, probably would have been... Kindergarten Cop. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, no. Was that 92? Number Man. 10 at the box office. Arnold. Arnold You're going to go was everywhere. Ninja Turtles, aren't you? No, 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 no. Joe versus the Volcano, I really had fun with. And The Freshman with Matthew Broderick and Marlon Brando, directed by Andrew Bergman. I love that movie. Yeah, I've then. never seen that whole film. Oh, loved it. That So those would have been my honorable mentions. Mo Better Blues came out that year, also worth mentioning. And The Grifters, of course. Hmm. Haven't seen The Grifters. I have seen Mo Better Blues. Not one of my favorite Spike Lee films, but a decent movie, certainly. We were just talking about how great the year 1990 was, and it must have been when you have three masterpieces at the top there, and I'm pretty fond, obviously, of my four and five picks. But when it came down to it, this might have been the smallest list of contenders I've had for any of these year-by-year countdowns. And we should probably note that 1990 is coming in a succession of years that we did, starting with 2004, the year before film spotting started. We've darted around a little bit with some blind spotting and Sacred Cow reviews and done some 80s stuff, but 1990 is where we're at. And all I have for honorable mentions, two movies I really did consider were The Hunt for Red October, a movie I just remember having so much fun with in the theater when I saw it the year it came out, and King of New York, a movie I just caught up with probably in the last five to seven years, Abel Ferrara, with Christopher Walken in a very memorable turn there. That was really it. Regret-wise, I already threw out that I haven't seen Total Recall. The best picture winner of that year, Dances with Wolves, I have somehow also not seen. I and think you're going to go through life without seeing that. I might. Somehow I, might, somehow I predict I that. Mean, I really do want to see it. And then I consider your pick of Days of Being Wild a cheat. I think it's a 1991 film, but I'll still cop to I need to see it. So that's a regret, too. If it's a cheat, close-up's a cheat. No. 
Are we gonna? Are we really gonna get into That's this? That's a discussion for another time. Because <laughs> I could give you my rule. I can <laughs> oh, no. share my logic. Let's, let's please not go there again. Our picks for the best films of 1990. We can't wait to hear. Your picks. Send us those or any other comments about the show to feedback at filmspotting.net. You can also leave us a voicemail at 312-264-0744. On Twitter, find us at filmspotting. That's Adam. I'm at Larson on film. You can also find filmspotting at facebook.com slash filmspotting. Over at filmspotting.net, you can find 10 years of reviews, marathons, interviews, and top fives in the show archives. And while you're there, take a moment and vote in the current film spotting poll. Well, it was current. Jeff Nichols versus David Gordon Green. We're 2.0-ing this thing. David Gordon Green versus another David, David O. Russell. Tell us which director you prefer by voting now at filmspotting.net. We also hope you'll check out our sister podcast, Film Spotting SVU, a bi-weekly podcast hosted by Allison Wilmore of BuzzFeed and Matt Singer of Screen Crush. It focuses on the world of online movies. More at filmspotting.net or filmspottingsvu.com. Out in wide release, Burnt, the Celebrity Chef Redemption Story with Bradley Cooper. Our brand is Crisis, the political consultant redemption story directed by David Gordon Green with Sandra Bullock and Scout's Guide to the Zombie Apocalypse, the Boy Scout Redemption Story with Ty Sheridan. Sure. And Zombies, we assume. Out in limited release, Josh, opening here in Chicago and I'm guessing some select cities as well, a bunch of films that look pretty interesting. Nasty Baby from director Sebastian Silva starring Kristen Wiig. Taxi, the latest from, speaking of contemporary Iranian masters, Jafar Panahi. It's his third film since being banned from making films. Somehow he still keeps pulling that off. Truth about Dan Rather's final days at CBS with Kate Blanchett and Robert Redford and The Assassin, director Ho Shao Shen. His film that won the Best Director Prize at this year's Cannes Film Festival. That is the movie we're hoping to discuss next week on the show and the top five is to be determined. We were kicking around period recreations. I had an idea just before coming in here that I yeah, threw we out. We need to talk about what that, that really blanking on. Have you seen this? No, I'm yet? just going on plot synopsis here, okay. Josh. But yeah. in uh, that plot synopsis, they talk about forbidden loves. Are you telling me that the assassin does not contain a forbidden love? Well, I, I mean, I, yeah, I, I guess okay. you could say that. So you're shooting down Somewhat my applies. Uh, we'll okay. talk about We're it. looking for good top five ideas. You can email us feedback at filmspotting.net. Filmspotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Thanks to associate producer Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at Chicago Public Media. More information is available at chicagopublicmedia.org. Our music this week comes from They Might Be Giants' 1990 album, Flood. More information is at theymightbegiants.com. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye.